Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. When you need a particular book, and it doesn't exist, sometimes you just have to write it yourself. But it takes focus and determination to turn a first book into a career change, especially while bringing up three children. Maria Desmondi took on that challenge, and now she's an award-winning writer of children's literature and has built a publishing company to help other women share their work. In this episode of Hack the Process, Maria will tell us what mentors and mastermind groups have taught her about delegating responsibilities, why she continues to invest her time and energy in social networking, and how she structures her routine to get it all done in a few hours a day without sacrificing family time. So today I'm speaking with Maria Dismondi, and she is a mother who used to be a teacher and became a published author who's an award-winning author creating children's literature. Maria, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, David. Did I get all that right? That's been quite a career history for you. Absolutely. Yes. It's been a lot of fun. That's cool. So how do you introduce yourself these days when you talk about what you currently do? That's a great question. And I don't think I know the answer just yet. I... (laughs) I'm a publisher, an author, a mom, a wife, a sister, a daughter, you know, just one of those women who, you know, what we do is we just wear many hats for sure. I guess it depends on the context because I believe you're also coaching people and helping people with their publishing work in addition to publishing your own books and of course, bringing up your own children. Yes. And that's actually something I'm really enjoying because I was in education for 12 years and left, resigned in 2011 and really missed that part of the job where, you know, you're educating people and you're seeing them thrive. So now I'm taking on clients who are published authors and I'm able to help them build their platforms and sell more books. And I get that positive feedback of watching them learn and grow and complete assignments and thrive. So that's been a lot of fun. No, that's really exciting because there are so many people out there, I think, like yourself, who have have a book idea or have an experience that they want to share, but they just don't know how to get over that hurdle from this idea is inside my head to I want to put this out there in the world and start sharing it and start seeing the benefits that it's giving to people. How did you get yourself involved when you got started with publishing? Because I know you you went from being a teacher to being a, a writer directly, I believe. Pretty much overnight, it felt like. <laughs> so I started out in the classroom realizing we were lacking certain books. I taught first and second grade and I felt that there was, you know, we needed books that kids could actually open up and see themselves within the pages. Books that were realistic fiction that represented our culture today. So I couldn't find a book about self-esteem, about courage, about being yourself. So I wrote my first book, Spaghetti in a Hot Dog Bun. And (laughs) I know it's got a crazy title. It is. It really is. And you can purchase that you know, all over the place. I signed with a local publisher and they were a subsidized publisher who since has gone out of business. I worked with them for about two years and I loved the process. 
So in 2011, when I resigned from teaching, I said, well, I want to continue writing books and I want to do everything. I want to do the whole process. I want to self-publish. So I walked away from the publisher I had currently been working with and it allowed me to in my contract. And I started publishing on my own in 2011. And that transpired into publishing for other individuals and going from a self-publishing company to now I'm running a traditional publishing company. Wow, that, that really is quite a transition. And of course, those years, the writing industry has changed dramatically for, for authors. And it's interesting, you started off working with a publisher rather than self-publishing, because I guess at that time, that was the path. Yeah, working with a publisher, then self-publishing. And actually, I missed one part in between. For the last two years, my company has been called a hybrid publisher. And I haven't really been super excited about the model. And so in a couple of days, we are officially a traditional publisher. And when you look at a hybrid publishing company, they take self-publishing and traditional publishing and they combine the elements so the author has a lot more control than if they're working with a traditional publisher. However, they also have to invest in the process. With a traditional publisher, the publisher and the editors have a lot more control, but they're going to be fronting the bill for the whole entire project. Oh, that's fascinating. But it feels to me like the industry is moving away from the traditional publishing model, at least from what I've been reading. I'm curious why you feel that moving in that direction makes the most sense right now. You know, our book sales have become solid, consistent, and I'm ready to take a risk and be able to use our profits on bringing new authors into the industry. Yeah, so the traditional process really seems like a good fit for me and my background in self-publishing. I'm excited to then educate the authors that we sign on so that they can be successful. And I think that's the missing link in traditional publishing is there's there's a big removal between the company and the author and how can you help the author build their brand and how can you help them sell their books? So I really want to like bridge the two and I want them to feel empowered to build their brand and see themselves not only as an author, but as a business owner, because that's what you are when you're an author. You are a small business owner. Absolutely. And I, I know that being a writer these days, even when you're working with a traditional publisher, it's become so much about self-promotion and being able to go out there and promote your own work. Absolutely. They offer marketing, but unless you are a big time author, the marketing runs out usually six to eight weeks after your book is on the shelves. So, you know, you're going to have support for those six to eight weeks, but then what do you do after that? So I really want to empower and educate our authors so that they feel that they can continue to run their business even when our marketing packages run out. So when you started, when you published your first book, was that same requirement still on your shoulders to do a lot of the marketing? Yes. Yes, it was. A title like that, you know, Spaghetti on a Hot Dog Bun, <laughs> that, that, that practically markets itself. But I'm curious how that went for you. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I was working full time and, you know, we didn't have children at the time. I was pregnant when my first book came out, when Spaghetti and a Hot Dog Bun came out. So I was just working in the mornings and going to my full time job and then working late into the evenings and just Every minute of the day that I could, I was putting into building my brand and who is Maria Desmondi and what does she do? Oh, she speaks at schools and just really building my speaker business and marketing the books. And I do a lot of grassroots style creative marketing. So I did a lot of education. I know podcasts have been so helpful to me and have learned so much about social media and about running a business from podcasts. So I just spent all of my free time I, you know, my hobbies all got put on hold because I was trying to build this business. And so I learned a lot about marketing in those first couple of years. 
what was the experience like? I mean, what were you doing in order to go out and market yourself? So most of it was building relationships. Like I said, grassroots style marketing is, I was not putting forth money into my marketing strategy. So at the very beginning, I think I sent out a hundred postcards and I never did that again because the postcard thing didn't work out for me. So let's say I went to five schools and I would usually schedule school visits when I had a spring break or a winter break from my full-time job. And I would build those relationships. I would show up early to the school. I would talk to the people who hired me, which was usually the principal or the media specialist. I would follow up afterwards with a survey and how could I do things better and really just build those relationships. And then, are you ready for it? Dun, 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 dun. Ask for word of mouth referrals. If you liked my assemblies, if you liked my speaking engagements, will you please refer my services to a colleague of yours? And that was huge. That's that's a big part of how my business grew was word of mouth marketing. People forget to ask, but if you don't ask, they don't think about it. Oh, that is that is key. And I feel if you build a relationship, it's okay to ask. And you're asking for honesty. If they honestly did not like your services, then they shouldn't recommend you. And that's an important source of feedback too, because also if you don't ask, people don't give you the feedback that you need. Yeah, and because of that, I think about this all the time. It's in the back of my head. Every couple of months, I go through my overdrive, whereas if, which is where I listen to all my podcasts. And I make sure I'm reviewing the podcast that I'm listening to because I know that those reviews and that word of mouth referral is so important. It absolutely is. As a podcaster, I can tell you it's incredibly motivational when somebody gets on there and says what they liked about the show and why. So I mean, I'm imagining you were doing this for the first couple of years and you say you were pregnant when you published your book. So you must have been doing this with an infant. Yes. Yeah, so then we had our first child and then the second book came out and we had our second child and so forth. The third book with a third child. And then- Wait a minute. You've got nine books. <laughs> Does this mean- <laughs> So we stopped at three children, but I kept going with the books. One book per year was about all I could do. You know, I'm really about quality, quality versus quantity. So I had a mentor in the industry who now has, I think, 98 young adult chapter books. He's cranking them out. He's cranking them out. Jonathan Rand, and he's been a wonderful mentor to me, but we're at different seasons in our lives. And, you know, I just wanted to put all I could into building the business. And that meant just coming out with one book a year. And as, as you were saying, you were you were doing this with very young children that you were taking care of as well. I'm really curious how you managed to juggle all of that. And that is where the hack the process, really, that term <laughs> comes into what I do. I really looked at my life and said, how can I make this work and benefit the people around me? I don't want to like take away time from my children. I don't want my children to remember me as the mom who sat in front of her computer all the time because I didn't have regular childcare for my kids. They were home with me. So I would wake up early in the morning and work a couple hours before the family woke up, spent a lot of time getting the children on routine nap schedules and really good bedtime schedules. And then I would work in the evenings too. So nap time usually was about two to three hours in our home and I could get two to three kids sleeping at the same time and I could crank out an hour's worth of work on my computer. And I just really have to be organized about it. Before I go to bed every night, I need to know what are my three main tasks for the next day. So when I wake up early in the morning, I can just hit the ground running and I don't have to spend time in that foggy phase like, okay, what do I need to do? No, I have my list. I hit the ground running. Well, it sounds like you've got some systems that you've put in place. And I know my listeners would love to hear what kind of systems you can use to keep track of so much. Yes, I do have systems in place, but the disclaimer is children are human beings. And so it doesn't always work. <laughs> 
So (laughs) nine times out of 10, absolutely. Okay, so some of the systems I have in place is I use a specific planner. I tried using my phone, like most people use their smartphones nowadays. It didn't work for me. So I stuck to using a planner. It's called the Day Designer. And it actually has like, what are your three main tasks for the day? It has a spot on every single day for gratitude, which I think is awesome. So I spend a couple minutes thinking about what I'm grateful for and I journal it. So that's kind of my written, how I'm managing my day-to-day tasks. I'm also running a team of 12 women right now. And to keep my team on task, I use Asana, which is a really great workflow program. And everyone has an account in Asana. And what I can do is say, all right, so-and-so, here are your tasks. Here are your deadlines for that. And everything is within one platform. So my team, we are not emailing each other back and forth. We are communicating all in this one system, which I love because if my graphic designer needs to give me an ad for something, she's attaching everything in one place. So I'm not going through 20 emails trying to figure out, oh, what was the email she was giving me the ad? in. It's really helped me keep everything organized in one place. And to be able to communicate with the team in a really, really good way, because there are deadlines and it's super clear. Asana reminds them when the deadlines are coming up. I don't have to do that. I've heard about Asana. I haven't used it myself, but there've been a couple of people who've been on the show who've recommended and that and things like Trello. There are similar tools out there, but there are a couple of things depending on how visual you are versus how list-oriented you are, I think. And Asana is one of the more list-oriented ones, isn't it? It really is, yes. And I have a lot of colleagues that use Trello as well, but you just have to find out what's a good fit. And I'm still running on the free program, which is really great because, (laughs) you know... (laughs) I like free. That's good. Why why not? I mean, there's a, there's a person and you're out here evangelizing it. So it's not like they're getting nothing from you. There you go. So tell me about this team of 12 women you have working together. Is this your publishing company then? Yes. And I have built the team over the last two years. I signed with a new distributor two years ago. And one of my first initial calls with the company, there was a sales manager asking me some questions and looking at my numbers and saying, okay, well, so who's on your team? How many people, you know, are in your office? And I got really uncomfortable and quiet. And I said, well, it's me. And he got really uncomfortable and quiet. And he said, you're running this business by yourself. And then, you know, we had this conversation. I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this by myself. Maybe I should have help. I guess my personality is one that I really do think I can do it all by myself. But we know that that is not something that will sustain over a long period of time. So I started hiring people to my team and, you know, I haven't kept everyone. There have been some really good fits and some not so good fits and I've had to learn along the way. But what's really cool about the team is most of the women are, I think actually all of the women are freelance. So everyone is working for many small companies. So they're not just on my team. They're on several teams. Oh, that's that's excellent because when you're working with freelancers, you benefit from what they learn from all of the other people they're working with as well. Mm-hmm. And they're all over the world. You know, like my book designer travels with her husband for his job and she can take her work as long as she has her computer anywhere in the world, which is really neat. <laughs> well, I'm really impressed you were able to go from a sole operator to 12 people on your team. Sometimes the hardest part about bringing people on is figuring out how to delegate those responsibilities. I'm really curious how you handled that. Honestly, I was in a mastermind with four other women for 18 months And I think I learned a lot from them about delegation. And they would just flat out tell me, Maria, you should not be doing that. That, you know, the term my teammates in that mastermind used was, Maria, that is a $5 or a $10 task. They would say things like that. So 
you know, as a CEO of a company, you really shouldn't be doing the $5, $10 assignments. You need to be taking the bigger picture items, the bigger ticket items and handling those. So for example, for a long time, I did all of my own graphics using systems like Canva and I really enjoyed doing it, but it just took up so much of my time. When you compare time and cost, I could pay someone and it would be more worth my time and I could be doing things that I need to be doing, which are like those bigger creative systems ideas. And that makes a lot of sense, although it can be very heartrending sometimes to let go of those little tasks that you enjoy so much. I haven't let them all go. <laughs> but I'm excited to hear you were involved in a mastermind. Can you tell me a little bit about your mastermind and how it worked? <sighs> If you are listening to this right now and you are not sure what a mastermind is, you have to Google it. So I started off in a paid mastermind for about 12 weeks, and the facilitator of that, her name was Natalie Ekdahl, and she was a female business educator. So she just, she started out as a podcaster and, you know, built her business around podcasting. And then she just started educating women on business. So she put together a short paid mastermind and I learned from it. We met once a week. Somebody was in the hot seat. Someone brought to the table an issue they had in their business. The other teammates would listen in. It was all by video and they would offer support, advice, questions to kind of help that person work through those issues. Well, at the end of the 12 weeks, Natalie said, you know, Maria, I, I need a mastermind for myself and I think we're a really good fit. So let's be in a mastermind. So then she invited a few more people. There were five women, five of us, all from different business backgrounds, which is key because if you have everyone from the same industry, there can be a lot of competition there. And it's really neat to hear from people from different industries. It can spark your creativity in your line of work. So we met literally for 18 months, and I think around the 12-month mark, we all flew out to Chicago to meet each other in person because we were from all over the country. Wow. So that was your very first face-to-face -face with all of these people, but... It was so neat. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how you found that mastermind in the first place, because as you said, you, you took a paid mastermind. I took a paid mastermind, and then the facilitator from that mastermind wanted her own, so she started a free one and invited her own people. And you know, it's really important with masterminds that the personalities are a good fit. And so I know a lot of times when you're thinking, I would love to mastermind with other people, you have to find people that you can trust and that you feel will show up because it's a time commitment. Whether you're doing it once a month, once a week, you want people to show up and to offer everything that they have to the group. And that was actually one of the things I was about to ask you about, because the trust issue is, is a big deal, especially when you're starting off with a paid mastermind. How do you find a paid mastermind that you're willing to jump into in the first place? Yeah, they are out there. They are definitely out there. And I know Natalie Ekdahl from BizChicks, she runs them all the time. I think they're a little harder to find, though, than I'm saying. I think you have to really do some digging. My husband's a part of an in-person mastermind here in the Metro Detroit area. It's a paid in-person mastermind, but it looks really different. They're only meeting once a month, and their meetings are three hours long. Well, we were meeting once a week for one hour, so they're all going to look a little bit different. Then can I assume that you're not the only entrepreneur in the family? 
Yeah, you can assume that. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> that's exciting. It's great when, when people can get together and support each other in that kind of role because entrepreneurship, it creates crazy personality mixes sometimes. It does. It does. But I am more of the creative and my husband is more of the financial business side of you know the brain. So. That sounds like a good balance. It is a nice balance. <laughs> you mentioned also that you had a mentor who you'd been working with. Can you tell me a little bit about that mentorship relationship? Yes. Well, I've had several mentors, actually. So at the very beginning, someone reached out to me and said, hey, I heard I heard you published a book. You have got to meet so-and-so. He's local to the area. So I met someone local to the area. And this man said, oh, my goodness, you wrote a children's book. I need to connect you with so-and-so. So at the beginning, people just kept wanting to connect me. And I was open to that. I think networking is super important when you're building a business and when you're growing a business. So I ended up being introduced to Jonathan Rand, who is the author of, like I said, I think 98, 97 or 98 books. They're called Michigan Chillers and American Chillers. And so him and I were emailing back and forth and he was just really honest with me and allowed me to ask questions and honest was just super generous with his time. And I got to meet him several times in person through, you know, if he was coming to town, I heard he was going to be at Barnes and Noble. I would show up and say hello. I organized to have him come speak at my daughter's school last year. So I learned a lot of the business basics from Jonathan Rand. And recently, I now have a new mentor who is really inspiring me to think on a more global and bigger picture in my business. And her name is Dr. Michelle, Michelle Borba. And she is a parent educator, and she has written over a dozen books about parenting. But Dr. Borba travels the world, and she is educating so many schools and communities and families on the importance of empathy and raising kids of character. So her and I have been going back and forth for about a year. She's going to be a contributor to my new children's book. She actually wrote the parent piece. And just last weekend, I got to meet her in person, and it was really fantastic. So exciting. One of the things that I noticed about when you talk about your, your mentors is they're also writers and publishers, but they're not in the same genre as you are. That's a good point. And I'm actually part of a, I started a networking group of children's publishers, and we do a Skype Skype call um, once a month, and we just share ideas with each other. So I've really felt that I don't feel competition in the industry. So I didn't choose mentors that weren't in the exact genre as me on purpose. I really don't find competition is worthwhile worry in this industry. And since you're working with other people who are publishing children's literature, I'm guessing some of them might be looking to you as being something of a mentor as well. Oh, yes, I guess so. <laughs> Is that something that you're encouraging? Like, have you been starting to take on coaching clients in that way? You know, for a long time, I actually did coach aspiring writers, but I found that I was saying the same thing over and over again. So because of my time, I then developed a course for aspiring writers. So if someone has a story and they want to publish it, I created a free course and a paid course so that I no longer take on those clients as coaching calls because... I felt like it was just the same thing over and over again. So it's really neat that I can still say, yes, I can help you, but it's going to be in a course format. That's excellent. You created an expert system to encapsulate that knowledge that you put together. What did you use to publish that? How did you put it together? So I used, well, I used the platform Gumroad, the platform that actually hosts it and takes payment. But the 
courses are all videos. And so I just recorded videos at home and did the editing myself. And I worked with someone from Fiverr to create the workbooks and the assignments. So I gave them the content and they created the templates for me. And yeah, so I feel really good. I don't like to say no to people, but I knew that it just wasn't my best use of time. So I can say, yes, I can help you in this way. And now my coaching clients are published authors because those calls look very differently because everyone already has their brand developed and their needs are very different. And I imagine a lot of those people are also people who are publishing through you. No, no, actually they're not because oh. <laughs> I, I offer free education to the people I publish and the coaching clients, I, I those are paid calls, but it's a good question. <laughs> no, that's interesting. How do you identify the writers that you're going to publish? Well, it is a submission and application process. So first and foremost, the story has to be a submission that meets the mission of our company. And it's very clear we publish books that are value-driven and are realistic fiction and that not only tell a story but teach a lesson. And so we get a lot of submissions that don't actually follow those guidelines. And so (laughs) I have to be very passionate about the piece in order to take on the project. I can understand that. Well, you're going to be investing not only your time, but also your money in publishing with this traditional model. Yes. It it, it changes the dynamic significantly. It really does. So when you've identified the, the niche that you really want your company to focus in on, is that the same niche that you published your own books in? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So I want to take you back to when you started writing yourself. I mean, this was something that you had thought about doing for a while, or was it something that just burst out of you because you could not hold it back? It's the latter. It just burst out of me. We were not in a financial situation for me to be starting this grandiose idea of, you know, publishing a book. My husband was commission only. I was a teacher. I don't know if you've heard teachers aren't paid too much. (laughs) I have heard that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I just felt super passionate about it. I actually submitted my book to 90 different publishers and I had a couple traditional publishers. One in particular said, we will publish your book, but it won't be for three years. I couldn't wait. The excitement and the drive was in me and I needed the project to happen. And so that was part of the reason I chose a local publisher because They were ready to make it happen. I did have to give money towards the project because their model was a subsidized publishing company. So I had to put forth some investment. So it was a big risk. Absolutely. But I needed to do it because it was the right time for my energy level. So at that time, did you connect with anybody else who was writing children's books in terms of knowing what to do and what the dynamics, the physics of creating a children's book would be? Yeah. So as far as how to write and format and submit, I everything I learned was through books. Through books. At that time, that was in 2006, there wasn't a ton of information online on how to do that. So I had, you know, manuals, like children's picture book writing manuals that I used, that I purchased and actually used to help me with the formatting. And then as far as Talking to people at the time, mentors, I actually reached out to several local Michigan authors and said, hey, I, w- I want to become a Michigan author. I heard crickets. And so one of the things that was really important to me was if this happens for me, I want to help other people so that it can happen to them. I can see that. and it's, it's clear that you have made that happen. So when you were creating this first book, I'm curious what challenges you encountered with the first book that you might have solved with the second book. What things that first writers come across that they might not expect? 
So I submitted my first book was 1,800 words. Now, for a children's picture book, that is long. (laughs) The average children's picture book right now, like the trending word count is 600 words. So that was really challenging for me when I first met with an editor and they said, we need to reduce your word count by half. It was hard for me to actually take words away. So I think that from, from then to the second book, to the third book, to now, I am a better writer and I am a lot more concise and clear in my message. And the editor I'm working with now on this book that's going to be coming out in a few months, I could not believe it. The amount of edits that she responded back with me in our first round, I said, did you read the whole thing? And she said, yeah, but you're writing, you've grown as a writer, Maria, like you know what you're doing. And I was like, oh my goodness, are we only editing once or twice? Like, I mean, in the beginning, we were going back and forth 12 to 18 times between edits. So I really have grown as a writer and I'm able to use less words, but get the point across. I think it's surprising to people how challenging it is to write children's literature, to try to get so much across in such a concise format. Yes. It's a term called show, don't tell. So you want to really be able to show without using too many words. And one of the things you talk about is realistic fiction. I'm curious how that relates to the children's literature genre. Yes. So if you go to the library, a lot of the bestsellers are silly and goofy with dancing dinosaurs and singing fish. In our family, we do love to read those stories, but children need to be able to connect with characters. And I find, I think it's important for them to connect with a human character. And so if you open up our titles, they're very diverse. You see children who have you know, different disabilities. You see children from different cultures, different shapes and sizes, different economic backgrounds. So it's really neat because I feel like we're representing our culture within the pages of our books. And so that's what realistic fiction is. It's something, it's fiction because it didn't really happen, but it could really happen. And then for a child who's reading that, research does say that children get indirect lessons from reading books. So you, David, little kid, might read one of my stories, go to school a couple weeks later, have a situation and say, I remember I was reading in the story and that boy did X, Y, and Z when he was approached by a bully. Maybe I can try that. So it's an indirect lesson. They're reading the book for enjoyment, but they're taking in that information and they're soaking up those tools that are part of the story. And I suppose it's easier for children to relate to when it's another child having those experiences as opposed to a bear or something. (laughs) Yes. And that is why I'm very passionate about sticking with realistic fiction because not many people have. It's interesting. I'm curious what inspires the books that you've written because you've, you've come up with so many titles. You've got another one coming out soon and each one had its own motivation, I'm assuming. At the beginning, I was inspired from my students. Spaghetti in a hot dog bun was my own personal story from childhood because I was teased for eating spaghetti in a hot dog bun. And each title kind of had a different inspiration, but they came from students. The chocolate milk por favor story was actually inspired by one student in particular, and I had his parents and his permission to write that story. And he is now, I believe he's a senior now in high school. No, he, I think he, he might be in college now. But we've kept in touch. He's moved out of the state. But that experience was phenomenal. I mean, he was a student who came to my classroom speaking zero English. And the power of the student's actions made him into a successful individual in our classroom. So that is about the power of actions speak louder than words. 
And now if you fast forward, my inspiration is from my own children. I can just imagine. So you're juggling all of this work and the publishing with bringing up the children. I'm assuming you work from home, correct? I do. Yep. I have a home office and I believe you can get a lot done in a shorter amount of time if you're focused. I actually don't know what I would do with an eight hour workday. If I went to an office, I would probably just talk to the secretary all the time and I think I would get really distracted. So I think I work really well. I have a smaller amount of time, but I stay focused and I'm able to get a lot in those four to five hours. I would love to know what your routine is. Okay. So my routine is different. It depends on the season because Ah. my work and my exercise all play a part in my schedule. So the last few months since summer, I have been waking up about two hours before the family and getting in a solid two hours in the morning. And then I can exercise with my children. So the kids will go for a bike ride and I'll go running beside them. Or we might all go for a bike ride or we might all go for a walk. Yeah. So that kind of, I was exercising kind of with my children and then on the weekends doing my own exercise when my husband's home. However, now that, cause I live in Michigan, I just did my first workout in 17 degrees yesterday. <laughs> so I do not take my children on my winter workouts because I don't think that's polite or fair. So yesterday I woke up and got an hour of work done and then got in some exercise. And then I usually get about two hours in the afternoon. And depending on the evening, if my husband's job, sometimes he has work evenings until like seven or eight, taking clients out to dinner, what have you. And after I put the kids to bed, I try to get work done in the evenings. I don't work a lot in the evenings anymore because I'm finding my quality of life is a lot better when I'm balanced. And so in the evenings after I put the kids to bed, I actually really like to read a book and lay down. But it just depends. It depends on the work week. It depends if, you know, the workload, if I need to throw in two hours in the evening, I'll do it. But I prefer not to. It's important to take care of yourself with situation. And it sounds like exercise is is an important part of your routine. It is because I get a lot of clarity. I get a lot of sanity and patience from exercise. Yeah. So that really balances me out too. So the the self-care aspect of it is something that I I imagine a lot of people are going to be asking about because with so much that you're trying to juggle, how do you manage to fit self-care into your process? Well, I'm very creative about it. So I will give you an example. My oldest daughter takes piano lessons and we have to drive to this woman's house and it's a 30 minute lesson. So choice A is to get back in the car with the other two children and drive around and run a couple errands. Or choice B is to go for a walk or a jog in that lady's neighborhood for 30 minutes. So I usually, all winter long, we do this. We pack snow pants. We will literally walk in the snow around that lady's block over and over again, as long as the temperatures aren't too low. So we just get really creative with the time that I have. I I try to really use it creatively. I'm curious how running a business and raising a family has affected your social life. Well, I've had to create boundaries, so I can't do it all. And I find a lot of value in my friendships and I make time for friends, but I have to really keep a good balance. So we do a date night once a month with my husband and I, and that's, a big priority of mine. And seeing my friends is a big priority too. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but it, you know, as you get older and families have busy schedules, it's really hard to get four friends to find a date that they can all go out to dinner together. And I just don't give up because I know that keeping friendships 
is a really important part of my life and it, and it fills me. So, but I have had boundaries. So if I have, you know, two nights in a row where I'm doing something in the evenings and some friends ask me that third night, oh, do you want to go get dinner this night? I'll have to say no, because I don't want to be away from the family so many consecutive nights in a row. I, I really like to keep a healthy balance. I am not afraid to say no. I don't say yes just to please people. I really find that I have to think about what's important so that I'm not doing, doing, doing just to please others. I'm sure it's important to take control of that. And I imagine that you're the person who organizes things rather than the person who waits for somebody else to organize them. Yes, take action. I believe you also do speaking engagements, right? Yes, I speak to elementary schools, middle schools. And just this year, I put out the intention that I wanted to do more speaking engagements to parents as a parent educator. And that has been really exciting. The speaking circuit can be very challenging for somebody who has young children. I'm really curious how you juggle that. Oh, I have a great hack the process answer to that one. (laughs) I say no to any travel speaking engagements. The only exception, I went to Orlando twice for speaking engagement and we took our family to Disney World. So I do. I say no to traveling right now. And I don't just say no, because like I told you, I like to help people. So if, if someone wants to have me at their school in California, I decline the offer of travel. But I say I do actually visit schools virtually and I give them my virtual speaking package. And so what that looks like is I use a program called Zoom and I will do a 30 to 45 minute speaking engagement to groups, schools across the country through the computer. Interesting. So sort of like a webinar. It is like a webinar, but it's interactive because I can see the children and I have the kids doing brain breaks and getting up and moving. I have them asking questions. I'm answering questions. That's exciting. I hadn't heard about that as an opportunity. How do you how do you structure that? Depending on the grade level, there's a 30-minute program because of their attention span. There's a 45-minute program. I do require that teachers remain present because classroom management and, you know, student behavior is a little bit more challenging when you're speaking through the computer than if I were there. You know, if there was a student who was misbehaving or talking to a friend, typically if I'm at the school and I walk near those students, they stop talking. (laughs) Well, I I can't really do that on the computer. So I do require that teachers stay present. And last but not least, I ahead of time, I ask them to have students come up with questions. So there's a format. I start off introducing myself. There's a, an educational portion of the talk. We get up and move around every eight to 10 minutes for a quick 30 seconds. And then we end the session with questions from the students. That's excellent. It's obvious that your background as an educator really has helped the way that you structure these things. Yeah, child development is important. You know, you have to be dynamic speaker to be able to keep their engagement through the computer. And I have been able to create some programs around that. So if anyone's listening and they feel held back because they don't want to travel for speaking, there are absolutely other options. It's it's amazing these days. If you have a strong connection, you really can work from absolutely anywhere. You can. It's so amazing. And I've actually spoken to university classrooms doing this and not so much parent groups doing this, but to college courses I've done. So being a published author and being an award-winning published author, being a writer and publishing other people's work, is this where you imagined your life going? Absolutely not. (laughs) No, I, I was like five and six growing up and playing school and I was going to be a teacher and I was going to be a mom. And that 
that was the path that I was going to take. And my dad was an entrepreneur. And I think it just was within me. And I can't believe the path that I've taken. And it's just really exciting. And I look back and I, I've just really loved every minute of it. <laughs> have, have there been any role models that you've lucked up to along the way? You mentioned Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, my dad, really, my dad wasn't afraid to try things. And I think that's a big part of being an entrepreneur. I think if you wait until something is perfect to release it or try it, it's not going to happen. So I put out things that are slightly less than perfect, and I get them out there. And I think that's one of the things that's really helped me to move ahead in this industry, because I'm not afraid to try new things and to put things out there. So looking ahead, I know you say you've got a book coming up. What do you think is the next improvement that you're likely to try to make in your own business? Well, I have just hired someone called a catalyst. And what she is doing is she's working with me to create a business budget. So that's going to be a big part of my 2018 is having benchmarks for certain areas, for example, marketing benchmarks and advertising benchmarks, things like that. And I'm going to just really try to to spend smarter in the business because up until this point, I've just been spending money and building the business. And I haven't been super thoughtful about tracking all of those spending adventures into certain categories. So we're categorizing everything and we're just getting really smart about the financial end of the business as we grow and build. And that can be a challenge just to get your head around that. How did you find this person? I went to an event a couple weeks ago, actually. It was a business women's conference in North Carolina. It was called Boss Mom. And I connected, there was a hundred and maybe 20 women there connected with all different types of business women. And I just kind of was talking to people and I said, I am looking for someone who can help me create like a business dashboard. And so, you know, I was connected with someone right there and I was able to meet her there and find out more about her business. And We've met once so far and it, oh, my brain hurts after we meet because this is not the part of the business that I enjoy. But I know as a CEO, I have to understand this part and I have to play a role in it. So I'm curious, there, there are people out here who are listening to you who might be interested in getting involved with publishing. How do you recommend that they, they get started with something like this? Well, I would start by educating yourself on the different paths of publishing, so like we talked about today, we talked about traditional publishers, hybrid publishers, self-publishing. So really just start reading and connecting with other people who have maybe traditionally published or worked with a hybrid press, getting some feedback, some referrals, some recommendations. And I think my greatest advice is to get your manuscript professionally edited. I can't tell you how many times people think they can submit their work, but they've never actually had it professionally edited. And they say, oh, well, my husband looked it over. Well, unless your husband is in editing, it's not that's not good enough. So spend the 50 to $150 to have a children's book or a novel edited before submitting it. And my next question, I think I already know what the answer is going to be, but how do you find that editor? Uh, talking to different people. <laughs> Yep, that networking. You know, but you just never know. You never know. So I have a friend who is a copywriter for a company, and she is now one of my editors. So, you know, just think of people in your life. I think Facebook is a really great place to connect with people. And most people have 200 friends on Facebook. You know, reach out and say, does anyone know of anyone in the copywriting industry or someone who is an editor and kind of put it out there? But you probably know someone who does that type of work. It's true. It's surprising how broad our networks actually are. And we don't realize what we have access to unless we go out there and ask. 
We have to ask. Yeah. So I'm, I think people are going to want to find out how they can get in touch with you and ask you some questions too. How do you recommend people get in touch with you? Well, I am 39 and I think email is my still my best form of communication. Right now, a lot of people will try to connect with me on Facebook Messenger and there's a couple different boxes I don't always see there. Email. My email is maria at mariadosmondi.com and I respond to email. I also am on Facebook and Instagram. So if you want to connect socially, if you want to put those links in your show notes, I'm Maria Desmondi on Instagram and on Facebook. Absolutely. Your Instagram is a lot of fun to follow. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to share that information. There definitely will be those links in the show notes. And I really want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing all this great information. Well, I have to thank you because like I said, this was a huge part. Podcasts were a big part of my professional development and I still spend so much time learning from podcasts. So thank you. Well, people are spending a lot of time learning from you too. And I really appreciate you sharing what you have to say here. Excellent. Thanks, David. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>